Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. When the weather is hot, you can reach right up and touch the sky. It's election shock therapy. I'm Chris Moore, and joining me on this oldie inflected episode are Andy Bramson, Matt Kukum, and Mitchell Crum. Guys, it's the whole gang. We're here with another one of our summertime, summer vacation, uh, Supreme Court uh, episodes. Uh, we spent two hours last time breaking down just the opinions around the Dobbs case. Which was, inc- which is, which was, and is incredibly consequential for the American um, legal uh, and political uh, landscape. We're going to swing back towards Dobbs a little bit today um, to uh, talk about the political ramifications of the case, and then we're going to start looking a, li- a little bit more briefly at some of the other big cases the Supreme Court has issued opinions on this year. But before we get to all of that, guys, it's great to see your faces. How have you been spending your summer vacation? I have been binge reading Wendell Berry. Um, so I have been. Wendell Berry uh, would not approve of binge, binging anything. So I know, <laughs> I know. But um, I got, so I got on a Wendell Berry, a slight kick this spring. I started reading Jaber Crow because I thought for a long time I should read some Wendell Berry. Asked a friend, you know, which one should I start with? She said that one. So I started, I read that. I thought, this is really impressive. And so I've basically been reading all his Port William novels. There's eight of them. And I'm um, kind of about halfway through the last one now. So um, so it's been a lot of Wendell Berry. And then some outdoor stuff with the family, too. You would approve of that. You'd say, go go outdoors in your garden. Right. Right. Yeah. Are you you gardening more now because of Wendell Berry? I am not yet. (laughs) I have not converted. Um, It's mostly in my head. But we have been hitting some state parks and having fun with that. He would approve. He would approve. Yeah. I haven't read any of Wendell Berry's novels. I've I've read some of his essays and those sorts of Mm -hmm. things. Um, If I was going to start with one novel, which one would you recommend? Jaber Crow. That's where I Jaber started. Crow. And I okay. think that's a good starting point. Yep. Um, Hannah Coulter is also fantastic. Those are my two favorites. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Mitch, how about you? How are you spending your hot days down in South Carolina? Uh, they've been exceptionally hot. And uh, <clears throat> we've had kind of a drought, which has been particularly bad because one of the ways that I started my summer was with planting a bunch of trees and bushes. And oh, so um, it's been kind of a challenge to keep everything alive. Um, <laughs> but, uh, right now with the exception of one Lily, um, that did, that did, that, that did perish, um, the rest of them, <laughs> everything else has stayed alive. Um, and so, yeah, so we've done some, we've done some gardening. Hopefully Wendell Berry would approve of my, um, gardening, although he's proud of you for keeping those trees alive for sure. I know. Yeah. I've, I've kept oh, the trees alive. Although, although at what cost, uh, in terms of the environment, <laughs> of the water, I don't know. You, you know, didn't use artificial fertilizer, did you? Um, just a tiny bit, actually. Mostly it was compost, though. So okay. oh, right. probably would right. of like I, I did. I will admit I used a little bit, but but it was okay. mostly compost, okay. actually. So okay, good. Um, good. yeah, I feel better. He's yeah. growing a grove of almond trees. He's using all the water in South Carolina. Right. I know. That is, that is kind of what it is, though. I probably use like an Olympic-sized swimming pool of water here to, to wow. keep these things alive. But wow. um, <laughs> That's right. That's right. um, 
yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so I've done that. I've uh, done some reading. I've mostly been trying to write. Um, so that's been, yeah, I haven't traveled that much. Uh, it's been kind of in that way, kind of a boring um, academic-y summer, I guess. Yeah. Um, I've been reading a little bit of, um, I guess, part partly too, I've been, I've been sort of like reading about the nature of universities and gen ed. So that's been fun mm. too. So mm. um, I was... Uh, I was reading the book Rescuing Socrates, um, which is which is excellent. Um, Don't drink the hemlock. Uh, well, yes, yes. Um, and the other book, um, which Socrates was by, didn't want to be rescued. Uh, Ronald so. Daniels, That's right. Universities <laughs> Owe Democracy, and this one mm. I really recommend. Yep. I think, um, especially given our our moment here of democratic um, precarious peril. Um, peril. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Um, this book is very, very relevant, um, for that, for that moment. So at any rate, yeah. Cool. And Matthew, how about you, man? What are you up to this summer? Well, um, took a couple trips. Um, so, um, Courtney and I did our usual sort of, uh, 4th of July, um, in Tennessee on the lake, um, which was, nice. which was a blast. Um, uh, for us, though, we took a really big uh, three-week uh, trip um, in Europe, uh, which was absolutely fabulous. Um, almost a week in London, almost a week uh, driving around Scotland, and almost a week in Paris. Um, and it turns out I think we beat the worst of the travel um you know, nice. and heat related nightmares, um, that, that are sort of plaguing Europe right now. Yeah. So it was, it was a fantastic trip. Um, so it feels like I've been gone for about half the summer. Um, yeah. but otherwise I've been sort of running an online course, um, doing some course development stuff, um, and some, some research and writing, which has been fun. Nice. Very good. I, uh, like you, like Matt, I did the sort of summer, visit to the family which for mm-hmm. us is ohio and michigan which included a week by a lake in indiana and i, nice. I that was very nice i didn't get to europe though i didn't get to uh, see uh, spain on fire um or uh, french uh frenchmen dropping in the streets those kinds of things um it is seem really really bad though uh yeah uh, I, I i don't know you know i don't know much about investing but it seems to me if there's some kind of um european hvac um, company that would inst- uh, retro install air conditioning systems. Now would be a good time or two, two months ago would have been a great time to invest in such a company uh, in Europe, but um, for the future as well. So yeah, I've been reading a lot too. It's been, I've been reading, I've been continuing my slog through a whole uh, bibliography's worth of stuff on Christian nationalism. Uh, and um I got to say, man, it's, 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 it's depressing stuff. It's sobering stuff. So it's nice to talk to you all and see your friendly faces. <laughs> so, um, well, we're here to talk about, um, we're talking a little bit more about the Supreme court decision to, um, overturn Roe v. Wade, um, and, uh, with a decision that I'm just shorthand calling Dobbs, uh, and that, um, decision, uh, in Dobbs fundamentally returns the, the right to, uh, restrict or empower abortion regulations to states. Right. Um, and what I wanted to do today is, but we basically, we walked through extensively, uh, the majority opinion, the dissents mm-hmm. and then a concurrent opinion as well uh, last time. So we're going to take all those things as, as prior knowledge. If you want to listen to us, you can go back and listen to our previous election shock therapy podcast. But today we want to talk about moving forward. 
So the, uh, we're going to kind of structure this in terms of immediate effects, uh, sort of mid-range effects, and then possibly long-term effects. But the immediate effects have really already kicked into place. A number of states uh, led by uh, conservative or Republican uh, legislatures have enacted laws restricting abortion in those states. In some cases, those laws occurred prior to the decision uh, in what was known as trigger laws. Mm-hmm. And I'd like you guys to explain what those are. And in some cases, we've actually seen more liberal left-leaning states take uh, positions to um, further reinforce the right to uh, to seek abortions um, in their states and possibly even for people traveling out of state too. And there's also been a federal response. So with that as table setting, let me turn it over and I'll start with, um, with in no particular order here, I'll start with Mitch, I think, um, and say, Mitch, what have you noticed? What have you observed? some of the immediate effects of the Dobbs decision? Uh, I mean, the immediate effects, I mean, like you said, there's been a huge range of effects across different states. Um, some of them, you know, like, I mean, like the state I currently reside in, South Carolina, uh, basically had like trigger laws, uh, you know, in place so that abortion was mostly banned, um, you know, as soon as Dobbs was, um, you know, as soon as, as soon as Dobbs was passed. There's currently a debate actually right now that uh, is, is, is taking place in the state legislature here in South Carolina um, about whether to and to what extent to, to uh, include exceptions. And I think that's in the short term for a lot of states, that's going to be where a lot of the debate hinges. To what extent do you allow exceptions on the bans? Do you allow exceptions in the case of rape, incest, uh, you know, various elements of medical emergency, things like that. You know, what is that, what does that look like? And um, I was actually just listening today. There was a superheated um, exchange in the state legislature just yesterday um, over this exact um, question with um, one state legislature accusing those of wanting to include exceptions of, of wanting to engage in infanticide and things like that. So mm. there's been some pretty, um, pretty hard words um, being said over these, over these debates. Um, I do want to also say, I mean, I think the other, on that same note, one of the things that I've been watching is my home state that I hail from, which is Ohio, has also had a major um, incident along these lines, which has made national headlines, which is that a um, 10-year-old girl who was pregnant as a result of uh, rape um, basically crossed state lines because the um, physicians in Ohio were not willing to perform an abortion um, because they were concerned Um that Ohio's law prohibited them from doing so. And so uh, a doctor in in Indiana performed that procedure. Um, This became a particular firebrand because you had uh, both, you know, a number of right-wing media outlets like uh, the Daily Caller. And then you also had some, uh, you know, folks like, uh, um, uh, I'm blanking on his name, Uh, uh, Jim, I can't think of his name. Anyway, uh, Paul, Paul uh, you know, politicians also basically saying they thought Jim Jordan is that what we're going for here. I'm sorry, Jim Jordan is that we're going Jim for? Jordan, thank you, thank yep. you, <laughs> Jim Jordan. Yeah, saying that this was like a lie and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, it very quickly came out that in fact it was true. All of this stuff right. had happened, um, and uh, you know, the Indiana's attorney general had like threatened to try to revoke the license of the doctor who performed it for. Uh, you know, for engaged for missing regulations. It turns out she actually followed all the regulations. She's now considering a suit for defamation against him. Um, you know, so it's just been a pretty serious series of events here. Um, and I think kind of going back to the whole thing here is sort of, you know, putting just to put sort of a really fine point on some of this. Um, 
you know, the national right to the, the leader of the national right to life, um, you know, said the following, which, you know, kind of gets at the core of this debate um, in response to this incident. Um, what uh, uh, his name is, Bob, he said um, she would have had uh, sorry, this is his quote. So she would have had the baby and as many women who have had babies as a result of rape, we would hope that she would understand the reasons and ultimately the benefit of having the child, um, unquote. And so essentially, you know, saying that as a matter of policy, he believes that it was a, that it would be wrong to allow an exception for for rape and for young children. Um, and so, you know, this is essentially set up, um, you know, a very serious conflict as far as what um, what these what these state laws are going to look like, and exactly how stringent, um, you know, these uh, these these bans are going to be in particular states. Right. Right. Matthew, yeah. So, oh, I would say, Matthew, we've also seen um, several states move in sort of really polarizing directions, yeah, not just yeah, trigger yeah. laws, but other directions as well. So what, what else have you seen in the, uh, in the, in the next recent couple of weeks? I mean, I've not tracked um, every state all that closely, but you've seen, you know, some, you know, some states, of course, um, sort of um, having sort of outright bans or near complete bans with sort of the debate hinging around not not just like weeks, for example, um, you know, or viability, but just around particularly particular exceptions, such as health mm-hmm. of the mother, rape and incest and so on. You've had other states sort of go the other direction and if not necessarily have a liberalization of their abortion policy, then try to enact other sorts of um, sort of government programs or policy to sort of um, make um, access to abortion easier, for example, or to sort of extend invitations um, to people to come into the state um, for, you know, abortion procedures. So, um, so you've seen some examples of that as well. So, um, so the states are sort of, you know, they're, they're going down the trajectories that we sort of more or less would expect at this point. Um, so you have, you know, probably when all the dust is settled, you're going to have, you know, roughly 20 states, which are going to have uh, bans on abortion or very significant restrictions. You're going to have, um, you know, maybe 17 or so states, which currently protect abortion rights, um, which are going to um, further protect them. So you won't see much of a change there. And then there's going to be, you know, um, some states in the middle where it's really not clear what direction they're going to go. Um, and they're going to have to, to sort that out. Um, perhaps with sort of referenda, you know, constitutional amendments to state constitutions um, or interpretations of existing parts of state constitutions. Minnesota sort of falls in that category. So um, overall, you're probably not going to see a significant downtick in the number of abortions um, that occur, especially when you include the um, the so-called medical abortions or the pharmaceutical abortions. Um, And now that um, you know, pharmaceutical abortions are becoming easier to obtain. They're, you know, relatively inexpensive. Um, they're much harder. It's much harder to sort of enforce restrictions against um, medical abortions, really, even with states um, trying to sort of implement bans, um, implement restrictions on you know the importation of these medicines, right? You're really not going to see that much of a downtick um, overall. Um what you will probably continue to see is overall a, a trend that we saw for about 30 years, which is a gradual sort of decrease in the abortion rate um, in the United States. There was a bit of an uptick um, during the Trump administration. Interestingly enough, that's mostly tied to um, the Trump administration's sort of um, policies on 
um, supporting the availability of contraceptives and poverty relief programs as well. Mm. Um, so the Trump administration is actually the only administration where we saw an uptick in the number of abortions um, in the United States. But generally, we've seen a downward trajectory. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, the increasing availability of contraceptives is, is actually a really big part of that. Um, and there's other factors as well. So I would expect that trend to continue um, in the long term. I would expect, um, even though some states will have outright abortion bans, you will have some states that will um, sort of settle on basically more of a European sort of approach, style approach, which is, you know, some sort of, you know, ban on abortions after 15 weeks, but uh, a general availability of abortion before that. And of course, the availability of these um, abortifacient medications as well. Yeah. So obviously things are going to be really messy. There's going to be a lot of political heat. Um and a lot of sort of stupid nonsense um, that occurs, um, especially yep. in the part of, you know, some Republican state legislatures. Um, and, you know, that that could turn out to, um, you know, that's going to have a negative impact on the lives of some people, obviously. Um, but for a lot of people, um, it, there's not going to be a whole lot of change. Um, the people who want to see abortion banned live in states. They're sorted into states that generally have abortion bans. The people who are really concerned about abortion rights generally live in states that have um, have widespread access to abortion. Um, so for most people um, who really care about this issue, there actually isn't going to be um, some sort of seismic shift. Um of course, obviously, this does have a real impact on a lot of people. But um, in some ways, um, I think this is, in the grand scheme of things, obviously, this is really legally important. This has important policy consequences. I think this will have important political and social consequences as well. But I think it's also helpful to keep in mind sort of the, the broader context. So I have heard a whole gamut of, op- of, re- of uh, expectations on how this will affect federal policy. The only thing I want to reflect on just briefly is to mention, in addition to how different states are reacting to the Dobbs decision, there have been uh, pressures on the federal government to do things like, for example, making um, abortions available on federal property. Uh, Obviously, since, for example, um, there are plenty of healthcare facilities on U.S. military bases. And in theory, Mm -hmm. the president acting through the Department of Defense could order that doctors on medical uh, or on military bases uh, provide abortions to local communities. Um, And there's been some pressure on the Biden administration to offer such a thing. To be clear, the Biden administration has not directed uh, military bases to do that yet or other federal lands, um, other kinds of organizations like that. There have been some interesting conversations about whether uh, tribal healthcare facilities, which are not part of uh, under U.S. jurisdiction, might offer some of these uh, um, services as well. But uh, but those are some of the other sort of uh, extra state responses in addition to what the two of you just described. I want to swing towards sort of the the medium range. I guess, Andy, I want to start with this. Uh, do you think that this issue? Um, how I, I guess I guess it's I, I guess I'll put it this way. Do, how do you think this uh, issue will resonate into the twenty twenty two midterms? I guess I'm at this point. I'm pretty skeptical. It makes much difference, and I'm skeptical in part for the reason that Matt just said, which is that it, I don't think it changes it that much for the people who are most passionate about that. I mean, if you're, you know, you think of the heart of the pro-life movement, they're going to be in states where this is really 
you know, it has switched in their direction. Um, I think the, you know, the people who are really passionately pro-choice who are in these, in these blue cities, um, they're often in states that do have more liberal laws. So I don't know. I just, I, I wonder how much it's going to make a difference, especially because it doesn't seem like the result of the election one way or the other is likely to shift the policy. And it's, it's hard to see what the, the clear path is. I mean, the Biden administration could, you know, issue a, an executive order, but it's hard to see something getting through Congress that really makes a big difference. I mean, you're certainly not going to get a, a right-wing law passed in the next couple of years um, that would make any difference, right? Because the Biden administration would, would veto that. Sure. Um, so that's pretty clear. Um, and on the other side, you know, there's just almost no chance. I mean, they're not going to get through right now. How's the Congress going to look better for them? Um, so if you're thinking about it at all pragmatically, I just don't see how much difference it makes. I don't get a gut sense that like there's, this is really likely to shift like enthusiasm mobilization of, of people nothing nothing oh really i've seen I, I don't know i don't i don't see it yet i mean like maybe it maybe it'll happen but right now i just don't yeah i don't i don't think it's going to make that big a difference i think i guess i would say like i think people are already um upset about other things i don't know that this really becomes this thing of like who, who are the people who are going to go to the polls who wouldn't have gone to the polls right like maybe maybe it's a big group but i don't know i'm skeptical yeah. at this point maybe i'm i'm a be wrong it wouldn't be the first time <laughs> to put it mildly i think i guess l- l- let me play devil's advocate and just suggest a way that that could happen and it may not happen so much in 2022 as sure. it happens in 2024 and here's how sure over the course of the next couple of years we are going to see states separate themselves into kind of three buckets i think and i think mm-hmm. mitch i think you really did a good job yeah. identifying this you'll have states where abortion largely becomes very unlikely mostly prohibited there might be some, and I'm including this places that ban it with the exception of, you know, the, the life of the mother or, ex, or right, um, right. um, Matt, I'm sorry. Uh, yes. Uh, you, you said, uh, sort of a, broadly banning it. Um, and then states that are broadly accepted to maybe even expand the acceptability. Uh, I'm thinking like New York, California here, some of the East coast states, but, and then states that are sort of what's a political football. Um, and, uh, I, I, I do think as we separate into those three buckets, what will eventually happen is, and this is my hypothesis, people who were strongly mobilized by pro-life voting in what are essentially pro-life states now have the, one of their major issues sort of resolved, right? Um, they're, they're less mobilized. They're, they're less likely to show up and vote because the thing that they really cared about really doesn't matter anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Likewise, the people who are maybe in pro-choice states who are still really, you know, incensed about this, they might be more mobilized. And so I could actually see maybe by the 2024 election, this might be something that if, even if Democrats don't show up or are are mobilized enthusiastically about at the very least, it might be a very powerful fundraising tool. Yeah, sure. I guess I could be more persuaded on the fundraising side with certain groups, but I think the, the issue is like the people who are most jazzed about this, are on, on the left are going to be the, the kind of progressive left, the kind of far left of the Democratic Party. Um, and they already turn out pretty well. Um, the people who the Democrats tend to have a little more trouble turning out or they have some elections where it's down tend to be more of their minority voting community, right? You get the Hispanic voters in particular out, the African-American community. And those communities have more complicated feelings about this. I mean, like, yep. yeah, they might be pro-choice for a variety of pragmatic reasons, but they're not 
abortion warriors, so to speak, right? I mean, they're not, mm-hmm. you know, they they had mixed feelings in part because of their deep um, their deep faith identity, right? That, you know, they, they see the, the reasons why they maybe feel they need this, but they also have, have these kind of conflicting feelings. So I don't know. I just, I feel like for those groups, there's going to be other more compelling things. And so I'm not sure if it's going to really, really change the numbers that much, but maybe it does. Maybe it gets fundraising out there. Um, maybe, maybe that, maybe that ends up providing them with an edge in two years. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the fundraising, our, our fundraising model is so completely different. Small dollar donations are just incredibly high now that will this add a little bit more money to some of the smaller don- dollar donations? Yeah. Um, will that make a difference? No, because there's so much money sloshing around. Mm. It really doesn't matter anymore. Um, we, yeah. we could talk about that at some other point when we do our election. Yeah, that's a, that's a good later. point, Matt. Well, let's, yeah. let's flag that. Um, I'm in agreement with Andy, I think, and, and I would sort of say really, um, again, every, you know, everyone is sorted into states for the most part on this issue and sorted into legislative, you know, congressional districts on this issue. Um, and the people who, for whom abortion is highly salient are also the people who are most ideological and, um, also the most, um, politically active already. So mm-hmm. overall, I think this doesn't have any sort of systemic level impact on, let's just say, the midterms and the probability mm-hmm. that Republicans will retake the House um, mm-hmm. because inflation is going to swamp and gas prices specifically are going to swamp everything. Yep. Real incomes are down 20 percent right now. Yep. And even a number of Democrats are dissatisfied with President Biden's handling of inflation right. and gas prices. Right. So that is just going to swamp absolutely everything. I do think abortion could have, you know, some sort of impact on particular some on particular races um, in particular states, for example, mm-hmm. um, for particular um, state legislators or governors or perhaps even certain Senate races. If you have yep. Yep. a particular, you know, Republican senator who's, you know, taking really strong sort of position on abortion, yep. like, hey, yep. we're going to we're going to ban abortions full stop, mm-hmm. um, you know, and if they're not particularly strong and they're in a state that isn't like super red, that could be a liability to them. So I think it could have some impact, but I think it's going to be on more of a yep. sort of case by case basis. Yep. Um, and I don't think it's going to be sort of a systemic level issue um, for the yeah. most part. So. And that's, and that's a really longer. good point. Oh, I was going to say, that's a really good point. And I think, you know, when I when I look at the head to the 2022 elections, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, but, you know, I think one of the things that's striking to me early on is that we have some potentially really bad candidates who are going to be running in some key races um, that I think could be really a problem. Like you could see in particular the Republican party losing some races. They probably should win um, because of bad candidates. And I, and I do think that this. You want to call some of those out, Andy? Was that, we'll, we'll save that for later. I'll just tease it. <laughs> but, um, but, but when, when you think about those kinds of people running, um, and then you think about this being a live issue. It's not, no, we no longer have Roe v. Wade as this kind of, you know, thing that protects at least some of the right to abortion, right? Um, so it really is, there is real lawmaking ability in a way that wasn't true a few months ago. Um, that makes the kind of Todd Aiken legitimate rate kind of problem, you know, candidate problems, which we had 10 years ago in the Missouri race, right? That becomes a really big issue because those people mm-hmm. actually have some real role. And so I think that's one place I agree where I think that, you know, it could it could be a tripwire that brings down some people if it becomes like, wow, that, that person is just beyond the pale in the way that they're thinking about this issue in the way they're thinking about women and women's rights. Um, So that, yeah, that is one place where I could see it mattering. It's just hard to predict that at a systemic level. I mean, who trips over that wire? How many people is it? Which sides are they on? Um, That kind of thing. 
If I, I could do it the that, other way too. Yeah. So. If I could add to that point, I think part of, I mean, part of what's going to get people into trouble, maybe more on the Republican side than the Democratic side, but you also have some people like, you know, abortion with no limits, right? Yeah, Which isn't, you know, right. necessarily, that's right. not a popular decision, uh, sort of a, nope. either, even in the Democratic nope. Party. So, nope. um, except sort of on the extremes, like, I think nope. part of what we've seen, and someone else has made this point is because, you know, a lot of, you know, the, the sort of the core question about sort of abortion restrictions was sort of taken out of the deliberative po- process of sort of representative, you know, legislative politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of bracketed off by the Supreme Court, basically um, elected officials, you know, at both sort of the, the national level and also to the, in the state level, to a lesser ex- extent, could basically, whenever they talk about abortion, it could be basically purely about messaging and sending signals um, yep. to people who are paying yep. attention, right? And so there was no sort of practice in thinking like, oh, I actually have to deal seriously with this very sort of um, complicated and controversial sort of policy pr- problem um, that now I actually have some sort of say in potentially as a mm-hmm. member of Congress right. or a, as a member of a state legislature. So I think everyone's going to have to learn how to start Yep. talking about and thinking about this differently because now it's been tossed back to these legislatures yep. um, to actually yep. sort of grapple with. And now people are going to sort of view um, view Congress and view these state legislatures as potential sort of serious actors mm-hmm. in this in a way right. they haven't before. Right. And that's going to, and politicians just aren't in practice, um, aren't practice at talking about this issue as an issue that they can have an impact on um, the same way they were a year ago. So um, I think it'll be interesting to see how um, both the Democrats and the Republicans sort of sort of um, figure out their particular sort of messaging and their particular approach. Um, there's going to be some weird stuff that happens in the short term. I'm more interested to see kind of what happens, what happens in the long term. So. I do wonder, I mean, in terms of the midterms, I mean, I think the one wild card that we don't totally know yet is like, is, is whether abortion sort of stays in the headlines. Because I think, you know, if, if inflation and everything else like continues to dominate, which, you know, right now it looks like that's probably what's going to happen, um, then yeah, I mean, it's not going to have that much of an impact. But, you know, if you see a proliferation of stories like the one coming out of Ohio, um, that could change. Like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's conceivable, you know, that suddenly you have that as you know, a central, a central issue that every candidate has to answer for. And that kind of creates a difficult wedge um, for, you know, especially for Republican candidates right now. I mean, you have to, because they have to think about, you know, if they start to talk about, you know, exceptions and, you know, reasonable accommodations and things like that, that's going to make their base mad and they might get primaried. Um, and they know that, but on the other hand, if they, um, if they don't do that, then they may well actually went, lose the election because, um, you know, I think there's already been a massive loss of, 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 uh, you know, women voters. I think, you know, the gender gap has become, you know, as we've already said, you know, it's the gender chasm. This is only going to exacerbate that. So, you know, if this, if this comes in too much, that's going to become, um, you know, it's going to start to become more and more of a liability for, uh, for a number of candidates. No, I think you guys are absolutely right. I, I'm interested to see what the playing field looks like because for so long, as, mo- as both parties sort of perceived Roe to be settled law, um, the real question was how do we nuance sort of around the edges of Roe? And now it essentially becomes a live political issue. And so I really do think that this could be a very hot issue in some states 
as and essentially a non-issue in other states. And I think, Andy, I think you're right. Uh, th- this just creates a new pitfall for candidates to fall into by saying indelicate things or saying pl- or making gaffes, saying politically controversial mm-hmm. things. And in uh, as Matthew said, in some of those those states where this is a, pl- a live political issue, where uh, legislatures could switch could shift dramatically and governorships could shift dramatically, this be- this remains a political issue. And we could see sort of the mess of some states sort of um, increasing restrictions, decreasing restrictions, going back and forth across uh, um, multiple um, mem- uh, legislative sessions, and then in other states it might just really be ignored. And I so I guess what I'm curious about from the three of you is look at your crystal balls, uh, um, kind of look at a, a sort of a decade or two down the road. Is abortion more divisive in the United States in 15, 20 years or less divisive in 15 to 20 years? Uh, I'm going to say less. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, in, in 15 to 20 years, to some degree, I, I, one way or the other, I think it will have sorted um, to some degree, I think the U.S. will have adopted s- some relatively middle ground for the most part um, position. I think it's going to be rocky to get there. Um, okay. And in the medium term, <laughs> you know, there's going to be a lot of a lot of back and forth and everything else. But I think ultimately, U.S. policy will end up, um, you know, probably with something that looks a lot like Europe. Um, you know, okay. there will be, it, it, you know, abortion will be available. Um, it won't be quite as available as it was under row. Um, but, you know, but that's, that's basically where, where things will, will end up. And even if there are some States that perhaps still have harder restrictions, it'll become relatively easy to obtain, you know, abortions elsewhere and things like that. So I think functionally that's where it will end up. And, and eventually as people sort of get settled into that, that will be, people will accept that eventually. I mean, I think that will be, yeah. Yeah. And Matthew, yeah, is, that, I, is that really reflective of public opinion? Or, yeah. It is. I mean, in all these sorts of issues, I mean, you know, at any given point in time, you know, where a policy is may not reflect public opinion, but on these really big things. And if you look at sort of the span of decades or generations, you know, generally policy tends to more or less track public opinion. You get, you know, deviations from that in a, you know, federal system such as ours, you're going to get more variation, Right. Uh, but I, I'm in agreement with, with Mitch on that. Um, we're we're going to you know, ultimately end up with something m- more or less like the European model with variations across the states. It'll become less divisive. What I'm curious about, though, is um, you know, given sort of the propensity of our political system to sort of be dysfunctional and sort of polarized partisan, I wonder how long sort of the sort of divisive topic of abortion will be sort of kept alive for political purposes. Um, and so specifically sort of on the national level. So I want to sort of float this, this theory by, well, hypothesis by all of you. So, so, you know, theoretically, you know, Congress could act either to protect abortion, um, you know, when, you know, even potentially provide for it at the federal level, or it could pass some sort of law that restricts it and says, you know, it's not going to be available at all, or more likely, um, you know, it, you know, we're going to have sort of a cutoff. States can't, you know, allow for abortions beyond 15 weeks or viability or some such thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's quite possible that such a law, either direction, um, could pass constitutional muster. Um, there was some debate about whether or not the court would sort of strike that down um, as sort of, you know, whether or not 
the federal government would even have the authority to do so. Um, but let's just set that aside. Let's just say they, they go for it. And of course, in 10 years, the composition of the courts could be different anyway. So, so my question is, you know, is Congress going to sort of use abortion as this sort of perpetual sort of motion machine kind of issue it and basically keeping the issue alive because what it does is it provides you know a a a platform or a space Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. which sort of partisan members of congress can go to their you know activist base um and get them riled up get them to turn out get them to give money, right, um, mm-hmm. on, on both sides, right? So you see this with immigration policy, for example. We haven't passed a serious immigration policy for uh, for decades. The immigration system is broken. Both Democrats and Republicans yep. recognize this. But, um, but members of Congress um, would rather um, not fix the immigration issue. Some of them have um, even said, we would rather have the issue, Chuck Schumer has basically said this as much, we'd rather have the issue and the controversy that we can run on in our campaigns rather than solving yep. the problems, because it's very useful for them politically to do this. And I do wonder if if the possibility of you know banning abortion on the Republican side or, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or protecting abortion on the Democratic side will be this per, you know, perpetual carrot sort of dangled out in front of you know, the hyperpartisan bases to sort of string them along, to get them to turn out, to get them to you know, give, give their small dollar donations. And I wonder if that is going to extend, I don't know, the shelf life of, of the abortion controversy, perhaps in a way that it wouldn't otherwise. I think in the long term, maybe in 20 years, all this will wash out. I'm with Mitch on this, if I had to you know, bet on that. But, but I do wonder if we're going to see the controversy drawn out longer um, because of the way that um, Congress um, is dysfunctional and sort of the current incentive structure that, mem- incentive structure that members of Congress have. That's kind of my hypothesis. I, I'd love to know what you all think of that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'm glad, uh, yeah. Go ahead, Andy. I was just saying, unfortunately, I think that's plausible, right? I mean, I think I think Mitch is right at a practical level. Like, that's where we should go. We should just at some point realize, like, let's let's come to a solution that we can live with. I was meeting with an alum for lunch, you know, um, last week, right? We were chatting about this issue. And, you know, we both said, said, like, you know, we're both pro-life, but, like, you know, why can't we reach a kind of middle ground compromise position that we can all live with? Because we have to realize we're, we're in a country where we disagree on this, right? And that disagreement, the largest group is a pe- group of people who said, who basically say it should be legal under some circumstances, but it should not be, you know, just like entered wantonly into, right? Like you shouldn't just do this as a convenience, but, but at the same time, like, you know, there's, there's pretty, pretty clear support and, and we are a democratic system, right? To say like, we can't completely ban this, nor should we just have it without any, any legal restrictions whatsoever. Right. So it seems like we should end up somewhere like, you know, end of first trimester, 15 weeks, you know, somewhere in that range. Um, And then beyond that, it would be very rare unless there was like a really exceptional reason, like life of mother. Right. Um, But I do buy that. Unfortunately, like this is a powerful issue with a certain part of the base on both sides. Um, And if you want to keep those people excited about turning out and volunteering and, you know, giving money. Right. I mean, like, might it be in your interest to keep that alive and, you know, maybe you can do it somehow. Right. I mean, the, the part of me that wonders if Mitch is right is like, does this fade as it gets eclipsed by other issues? I mean, we have the, the kind of economic crisis we have, you know, the heat wave we have right now is very serious. Right. And it is not unpredicted. Right. I mean, it's, it's part of what we've, we've raised concerns about where we're going in terms of the climate, 
Um, does that become a salient, a really salient issue, right? Um, concerns about immigration and how we think about, you know, what makes us as Americans, right, are becoming, have become much more prevalent. And of course, Donald Trump fed that a good bit, right? So I just wonder if this, if this becomes less compelling as a kind of first order issue. Um, and so in that sense, then maybe that opens up space to compromise in this. That doesn't necessarily mean we're doing better as a body politic. It just means we've gone on to fighting about other divisive issues, right? So, so I'm not very optimistic in that in the broader sense, but I, I do wonder if maybe those things cause this to fade. Yeah, actually, I, I'm inclined to agree with your hypothesis, Matthew, too. I, I think that the likelihood that we end up in aggregate where Mitch is suggesting we end up is, is likely, but that doesn't mean that um, at the margins, especially on the fringes yeah. of both parties, we retain this incredible energy whether it's mm-hmm. energy towards complete banning of abortion or um, complete legalization of abortion on demand. I think those things are likely to continue to empower and energize it's anywhere from uh, 15 to 20, maybe 30% of the American voting populace on, uh, in, in total, right? There's always going to be about 15% of people who want to ban abortion under all circumstances and 15% of people who want it to be legal under all circumstances. And I don't think that sort of, you know, the, the process of compromise is going to mollify those people. Right. And I'm also not sure that that population is going to cycle out by um, age, uh, a cohort aging out in the way that sort of say gay marriage has. Um, so I, I, I do, I, I do think this remains salient um, as a mobilizing issue and therefore as a litmus test kind of issue for members of Congress evaluating judges uh, deep into the future. I guess the one other thing that, that probably is, is is somewhat of a wild card that supports, and, and I will say, like, I mean, what I my response to that is based on, again, as Chris said, like the practical outcomes, like what's this going to look like? Um, you know, will it have kind of settled down policy wise? And I, I do think that, but I do think in terms of the politics side of it, I think that's I think that's all absolutely correct. And I think part of the driving force here, and you know. Um, I, I even had a little Facebook post on this is I think, you know, the churches are going to look an awful lot like, you know, uh, the churches around seeking prohibition. I mean, I think, you know, essentially right now we have a strong movement in a lot of, you know, conservative evangelical churches and a lot of Catholic churches that basically have taken on this, you know, absolutist stance and that, um, you know, that, that, that sort of absolute stance, you know, sounds a lot like, um, you know, the absolute stance about alcohol, you know, which says, you know, under no circumstances. And even though, um, you know, it's arguable that a large number of the population didn't want alcohol to be completely banned, you know, they, they recognized its damage, they recognized that, you know, alcohol was doing, it was having a lot of issues and problems, but they didn't want it completely banned. I think, you know, there's a lot of analogies. And the fact is, you know, prohibition did a lot of damage to the public, face of Christianity. And it really kind of pushed uh, evangelicals even to the political margins for a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's a real possibility that it both animates and continues to bring evangelicals to politics, but in a way that increasingly marginalizes them and pushes them to the fringes and undermine even undermines their ability to be politically effective um, overall. And so I kind of think that's as you know, as somebody who's obviously a believer, you know, I think that's that's mm-hmm. a potentially, and given the good that perhaps evangelicals could do in other areas, <laughs> um, I do think there's 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 a real possibility of that um, being the being the ultimate outcome and fruit of of you know 
just how just how deep and and uh, and thick some of this um, you know latching on to the to the issue of abortion has been. Yeah, agreed. And, and it's such a there's such a distinction between on the one hand, like promoting a really robust culture of life, right, and and talking about the value of life. And and I I absolutely believe you know the value of life before it is born. Um, you know the when the baby is in the mom, right? That that is a human being, right? And we should respect that. But, but it goes with a culture of life that goes to other areas of life too. Like, how do we think about the life of immigrants? How do we think about the life of um, the elderly? How do we think about the life of the poor? How do we think about the life of the minorities, right? And, and, and how do we promote a rich culture of life that focuses on how we as Christians are serving them and are, um, are showing the love of Christ to them, right? Uh, instead of focusing so much on we're going to ban certain things, right? I mean, I, I do think abortion is morally wrong. But I also recognize like the, the question of whether and to what degree it should be allowed is a much more complex question because there are many things that are morally wrong that we do not legislate about and that we do not we do not ban under law. And and I think rightly so, because there's you know, where where do we want government involved? Where do we not want them involved? And so I think that's like a, a, a conversation that we need to keep having as Christians is, you know, how do we present the gospel as good news, as a, as a positive kind of reflection of the faith, as opposed to um, we're the people who are against all these things. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I don't think we've done great at that, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think, you know, reflecting on, you know, what we saw with the pro-life movement over the past, you know, 40 years, um, you know, after, after the Roe decision, especially after Casey is, you know, the, the, sort of success of the pro-life movement. Um, I mean, certainly the ability of the pro-life movement to sort of pair up with, you know, um, sort of the original textualism of like the Federalist Society and sort of the, the, those forces sort of brought together to get, you know, to really change the judicial system um, to get us to this point is, is truly remarkable. Um, and I think the pro-life movement gave sort of the political heft that, you know, got these sorts of Federalist Society judges mm-hmm. elected. So I don't want to minimize that um, right. or appointed. Um, on the other hand, I, I think what the pro-life movement did and its success sort of beyond electoral politics was, um, you know, was was more cultural and social, right? Um, emphasizing, mm-hmm. you know, the importance mm-hmm. of, of human life, um, making this yep. Yep. an issue um, that wasn't just a Catholic issue, but an issue for, for Protestants as well. Um, and right. tying that to the theology, um, making, you know, really bringing to the public the idea that, you know, this is, this is a human being and we need to value all human life regardless of, you know, its age or its um, sort of mental um, capacity, right? Um, and I think that was pretty powerful. And I think that's probably, you know, some of the reason why you've seen um, sort of a public shift um, away from supporting sort of really widespread, you know, completely unrestricted abortion. So mm-hmm. I think the pro-life movement, if it wants to think about what what its role is in the future is it needs to think about, okay, how, how can we sort of winsomely um, sort of shift right. the cultural, the culture on these life issues? Um, mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that's where the real battle is fought. And, fought. and, and it's inter- interesting too, is that, that again, if you go back to that trend of, you know, uh, the, the steady decline of abortion rates, right? That mm-hmm. decline, mm-hmm. Um, that the rate of decline was stable. So the decline continued and the the rate of decline was stable as well across mm-hmm. across the states, across different presidential administrations, right? Which just right. demonstrates again, mm-hmm. like sort of the limits of sort of using sort of the the blunt sort of force of, of policy, public yeah. law to ban something to get right. um, the right. sort of effects that you want. I think yep. they're going to have to start thinking more broadly beyond bans. Think about culture, 
and think about um, other sorts of policies that can mm-hmm. promote life in a variety of ways and other sorts of policies that might even further reduce abortions, right? That don't have yeah. to do with bans, but that have to do with um, helping poor families um, and right. poverty, right. Relief, which is actually um, very closely sort of correlated to abortion rates. So mm-hmm. I, I could say more, but um, yep, I will say though, and I, I, I come back to this about every three podcasts, so it's time. Um, but, uh, we're the, some of those ideas, some of those ideas of sort of transitioning, uh, of the pro-life movement into sort of these winsome ways of, of, of helping the poor of helping, uh, populations that are likely to experience unintended pregnancies and therefore desired abortion in the first place, um, is impeded by the fact that we have very different competing um, moral logics about what those things mean. And so someone who is deeply, deeply opposed to um, to abortion in any form is probably also opposed to providing uh, free contraception to people um, and uh, promoting what they would see as promiscuity. Right, especially if they're if they're motivated by um, sort of religious motives, right? And so, or or they might they might say that if you become if you become pregnant, this is fundamentally your responsibility. And you're responsible for not becoming pregnant, as opposed to saying if we increase uh, education for women or if we increase poverty relief, this has the this has the effect of actually reducing the birth rate and reducing unintended pregnancies. Um, those are those are uh, moral logics that don't square with every single voter, and that's I think this will remain durably hard uh, to get people to sort of make the turn the turn in the pro life movement towards some of those kinds of things. Um, guys, I, I I I'm gonna call um, I'm gonna wave the. I don't know what color flag this is. What's the color of the flag that gets waved on the last, the second to last lap in a NASCAR race? It's white, isn't it? Is it white or is it checkered flag is the finish line, right? Checkered flag is the finish line. And the, with one lap to go, it's a white flag, I think, right? I think, I think that's right. You can tell I don't watch a lot of stock car racing. Um, I feel like Mitch should really know the answer to this because he lives in South that's Carolina. That's true. You're in South Carolina. You're required to know this. And, she should really, and by the way, Mitch, while we're at it, you should really get a driver. Like you should have a driver that you support. Well, the thing is, I've, I've actually, I have been kind of getting into F1, so okay. I do follow F1. Oh, you're TV. such a Netflix hipster. I know, I know, it's true, but, I, but, I, but I've been following it more for real now, not just, not, not just through Netflix, so, yep. um, and I'm very excited that the Haas team is actually, actually doing great, so yay America, woohoo, our team isn't on the bottom anymore. Okay, well, before we transition to complete frivolity, it, it is me... white. It is white. I just looked it up. Okay, oh, the flag, not not F one, although that's primarily white too. <laughs> not complete frivolity. Um, yes. So, um, I'm going to wave the white flag and say that um, we don't want to give short shrift to uh, Bruin versus um, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. So I would like to come back to that case in our next podcast, and let's wrap this up here for now. Uh, we've talked today about the political implications moving forward uh, from Dobbs uh, versus, versus Mississippi Women's Health and the end of Roe versus Wade.
So thank you for listening to us. Uh, we hope this uh, has added some light and not just heat to a very contentious political issue. Uh, please reach out to us and let us know other things you'd like us to talk about or things that would be helpful to have explained from the perspective of some political scientists who care deeply about these issues and deeply about uh, civil society in the United States and the role that our faith plays in that as well. You can always reach us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Make sure you check out other things on the podcast channel. We have our summer programming uh, uh, fully uh, um, underway right now, including some Pixar movie uh, deep dives and uh, um, tweet victory and lots of other great stuff too. Thanks for listening. On behalf of me and my colleagues here at Beth University and the University of South Carolina at Aiken, um, this is Chris Moore. Until you hear my voice next time, go Royals. Go Royals.